welcome to this special Halloween edition of Hence the Future podcast. I'm Matamore Cronin. I'm Claire Cronin. And today we're discussing horror, ghosts, and God. Claire, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Matt. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So for our listeners, in case you couldn't tell by our last names, Claire is my sister. And she is also the author of Blue Light of the Screen on Horror, Ghosts, and God. It's a book about superstition, delusion, the things that keep us up at night. And it's currently available for pre-order. It comes out on October 16th, just in time for Halloween. October uh, 13th. Oh, 13th. Even sooner, even more unlucky of a date. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> and Claire is also a musician, a poet, a PhD, an artist. And what I love about your book, Claire, is that it describes the indescribable. And I, I read a lot of nonfiction, so I spend a lot of time hearing about the world of science and people hardly ever talk about what's really going on in people's minds and what's going on perhaps in other dimensions or memories and ghosts and what this means in the modern context, how that's changed from the ancient context. And you really have a multi-sensory experience when you're reading the book. It's not just prose or academic analysis. It also has poetry. It also has drawings in it. So I, I was just absolutely blown away by it. And you know, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that in the first few pages of reading the book, I was brought to tears Aww. because that's how powerful it was. Thank so you. So I, I really highly recommend this book. And I want to talk about the three main topics in your book, horror, ghosts, and God in that order. Mm -hmm. And then I also want to talk a little bit about the blue light of the screen part of it, which is our digital reality and how that may evolve in the future. So let's start with horror. I want to first ask you, why do people watch horror movies? What do they get out of horror movies? And why are some people really drawn to them and they really enjoy horror movies, as paradoxical as that sounds, whereas mm -hmm. other people can't stand a single second of it and they're hiding with their hands over their eyes? I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons for it. And uh, any theory that I've read that, like, claims to answer that question in an absolute way. I, I feel like I've always found holes in it or exceptions. Um, but in general, it seems that, you know, some people do get pleasure out of watching horror movies. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they, and by them, I mean, like we, myself, um, want to see like real life horrific things, things happen. Mm -hmm. So there's some kind of like aesthetic distance because, you know, it's fictional because it's usually has like all of these stylistic effects um, where it can be it's far enough away from you and unreal enough that it can become entertaining. Um, but it contains elements about like death, illness, violence um, that I would suspect I mean, maybe most people are thinking about already just like mm -hmm. living in the world, but perhaps horror fans like it's more at kind of like the top of their minds. Right. Um, so for me, I think as someone who feels a lot of anxiety in general and like, you know, especially this year, but just, you know, since childhood, I've liked horror and I've dealt with a lot of anxiety and depression and have had kind of a pessimistic view of the world. Like there's something about seeing horror movies that's like both kind of satisfying because it's like, oh, here are all these things haunting my mind and now they're put out there on a screen and I can watch them um, and like conquer them in a way, at least temporarily. Yeah, it's almost like you're preparing yourself for the worst possible thing that could happen. <laughs> yeah, but it's also comforting because it's like it's unlikely that it'll actually be that bad. And so compared right. to your daily worries, it's sort of like it puts your own problems in perspective yeah. a little bit. Yeah, it's also interesting to think evolutionarily how, you know, children being afraid of monsters in the dark, for instance, that's a real evolutionary adaptation where if you're a child who's not afraid of monsters in the dark, you probably would have been eaten by some predator on the savannah thousands of years ago. So yeah. everyone alive today has that innate fear of monsters in the dark to some degree, or we wouldn't yeah, be here. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think there's a benefit to being vigilant and frightened. Um, and also there's something about watching horror that to me felt like I was cultivating some kind of bravery um, I don't know how 
you know, I don't know how useful that bravery is when put in a real world context. Um, but just like being able to watch things that are scary and kind of face like these worst case scenarios, uh, I don't know it, yeah, it feels more psychologically useful to me than, um, this destructive thing. Like you're filling your mind with bad images. Right. It's more like the Roman take of memento mori, like being mindful of death. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, I love like Alan Watts talks a lot about fear of death. And he talks specifically about what he calls the screamy memes, which mm -hmm. is like the worst possible thing you could ever experience in your life. Like, just think about the most painful possible death, like agony, like just the worst possible thing. Mm -hmm. And everyone is, af is afraid of that. And you can either push it aside and and not deal with it, or you can kind of deal with it head on before you have to actually deal with it. And in that sense, maybe you'll you'll be able to you know live your life more fully. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I mean, what do you think about like we watched a lot of horror movies growing up? Right. Well, that, that's what I was going to say is that you know you, you and I both really enjoyed horror a lot growing up. But it does seem like, and you talk about this in your book, at a certain point, you could handle horror movies that Ryan and Johanna <laughs> and I couldn't. And so it's interesting to think about why people have different thresholds for a certain type of horror. And like, I'm at the point in my life now where I hardly, I pretty much never watch horror unless mm. it's something that I feel like has a real like message or meaning behind it that's more artistic and it's sure. not just about the scare factor so yeah. like the witch midsummer right. train to busan like i love those those kind of movies now but i used to love just like you know slash them up zombie yeah, yeah. killer movies and i i like never watch those anymore yeah i i mean i feel like I, my my tastes have become more discerning since i started writing the book just from having watched so much and there are still, I mean, I'm not like completely numb. Like there are certain things I won't watch and will turn the movie off. Like I really hate amputation mm. and I don't, I can't tolerate much sexual violence. Yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah, I like more when it's, it's like a mystery or there's, there's something indescribable that, yeah. and I actually, this might be a good time to bring up some of the taglines in popular horror movies that you mentioned in your book because sure. this can get at the notion of what makes something scary so mm. imagine your worst fear a reality there are some frequencies we were never meant to find we tell ourselves there's nothing to fear but sometimes we're wrong not every gift is a blessing sooner or later they will find you it's not the house that's haunted some things cannot be explained and my favorite one they're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I love the they're here one because it's like you can almost imagine if you're living some peaceful hunter gatherer life and then all of a sudden like the lookout guy comes and he's like, they're here. And it's like in that moment, you have that fight or flight like you realize you're going to have to fight for your life, possibly die, possibly mm -hmm. experience agonizing pain. But also you can't let that. Uh, immobilize you. You have to jump into action right then. Right. Yeah, these are definitely really ancient fears, even if they are put into movies where it's like the ghost is haunting you through a cell phone. Like it's, mm -hmm. you know, the return of the dead, the threat of violence against your family. Um, but I think like some of those do point to another pleasure of, of horror or of the kind of horror I like, which is more the supernatural, mysterious mm -hmm. stuff which is like an intellectual pleasure of watching a mystery be solved. Right. Like the investigative scenes. Um, so in that way, it's similar to kind of like a detective story. Um, like the, the skeleton key I was thinking about where it's, it's basically, you know, this old sort of, you know, Bayou Cajun voodoo kind of, or hoodoo, I guess, kind of culture. Mm -hmm. And this very modern white woman comes in and is caring for this elderly man. And then right. by the end, you find out the man is trapped in his own body. Yeah. And his, he's really a young person whose young body was taken by someone else. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, I, I love movies like that because it, it makes you really realize like, 
the fear of being trapped, but but also the fear of like of losing your youth or the fear of mm -hmm. someone taking something from you that you could never get back. And, yeah. it, and the other thing I love about that movie is that it only works because she believes in it. And right. they say at the end, you know, uh, people who are familiar with hoodoo don't even last a day because they see that it's something they shouldn't mess with and they leave immediately. It was only a modern woman who was right. able to actually like get basically, you know, tricked into believing all this stuff right, and then it yeah. became real. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, uh, I feel like I've read a little bit on some internet forums about what real hoodoo practitioners think of that movie. And uh, I think that the idea that it only works if you believe in it is like a, <clears throat> is a more contemporary secular notion that totally makes sense to us and would make sense to the main audience for the film. But of course, the people that are like practicing root work are like, no, it works either way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you, you also mentioned that the, the popular modern theory is that, quote, evil is drawn to any negativity, negative thoughts, negative emotions, negative actions, negative, negative media of any kind. So I, I'm curious if you, if you think that that theory is more right than wrong, if you think that there is something about, you know, you are your thoughts and putting negative thoughts in your head kind of pulls you towards that negative uh, reality. Um, or I mean, if, I yeah. yeah, I don't think that's the... I don't think that's the contemporary secular theory, but I think that's um, that comes from like kind of kind of Catholic and Christian uh, sort of panics about horror and supernatural evil. But yeah, it's also reflected in like some like semi new age positive psychology stuff that is very mainstream. Um, but no, I don't I don't believe that my thoughts <laughs> control the world. And thinking a negative thought brings something negative on me unless that influences my actions. But I, I think that's a dangerous uh, road to go down, like especially in sort of new age culture where you start blaming people for getting cancer or mm -hmm. something because they like were holding a grudge against somebody. Um, right. But I do think there, you know, I'm not dismissing that idea either. I think the warnings that I've received... Um, from you know from growing up in a religious household and having like my mom our mom be sort of suspicious of all of that stuff and keep keep telling me that it's wrong to be watching horror movies you know that sticks in the back of my mind like i do mm -hmm. i do uh i do worry over that in the book right but i don't you know i don't know what other people believe in america right now about what evil is like we're not in a fully secular culture like it's a very kind of religious and extreme culture in some places um and so i think some people definitely believe in the devil and, and for some people they they thought that died out in like the medieval times right with nietzsche's god is dead sure or or like before then mm -hmm. um but i'm you know yeah i'm interested in thinking about what evil is because it's there are just some human actions that seem beyond explanation with what we know about psychology or biology or some defect in your brain right well there there is the very real phenomena of sadism and masochism where you get pleasure in either bringing pain upon someone else or bringing pain upon yourself and that seems like a demonic spirit and if i mean if you you could think of that in the literal sense of like you know a christian like a literal spirit or you could just think of it as some something about our nature that yeah. is inherently evil and maybe it's almost like it's passed down through our dna through the generations yeah and some people have it so it it does kind of pop up at certain times whether it's the right sort of like a really difficult environment or it's just the person that has the right physiology or like the right circumstances, like all of a sudden someone threatens you and then this like demonic rage comes over. Yeah. You. I've been, yeah, I've been, I watched that true crime documentary that's on Netflix, which I'm forgetting the name of. It's like this guy kills his wife and kids, but it's, 
it's really scary because the whole thing is just shown through social media videos and then interrogation videos. There's like no dramatization. Um, but he, it just seems like he was a completely normal guy and then he snapped. Uh, and I've been reading a lot of true crime stuff for work. Um, and I, yeah, the que- I can't resolve the question. Like it does seem like, okay, I guess humans are inherently very violent animals mm-hmm. <laughs> and some more than others. And there does seem to be something that can be triggered and it can turn you into like a very evil killer or maybe like that same impulse could make you act heroically on a battlefield or something more useful. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of it just comes down to you can think of things in a very literal sense, like how it's manifested in the world. Like you have a heroic person or a villainous person or a true friend or a a lover, or you can have the abstract concept of what heroism is in the abstract or what being a villain is in the abstract. And I don't think you could say that the abstract notion of it that's common across many different beings living in many different places in time and space is any less real than the instances of it appearing in this person or that person. So, yeah, I I mean, that's that's part of what I love about your books, because there's so few books that even try to describe what's going on in that realm. Um, And your book does a really great job of it. So maybe we can talk now a little bit about ghosts and specifically, I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on the what's different about the modern interpretation of ghosts, which you use the ghost whisperer as one example mm-hmm. versus the more ancient interpretation of ghosts and what what they mean. Um, I mean, I think there are different kinds of ghost stories and it's, you know, the idea of ghosts and ghost stories, either like true legends or fictional things are some of the oldest stories that we have in human culture. But the sort of ghost whisperer, which is that this TV show with Jennifer Love Hewitt that I used to love watching while I was cooking, um, is like a melodramatic ghost story. So there's like a heavenly afterlife, but the, but the show is not Christian. Like they don't talk about religion and she helps the ghost to move on and acts as like almost like a therapist to them. Um, but she's really just like a very loving psychic medium. Um, and there doesn't, I mean, there's some kind of evil force, but it's not exactly hell. Uh, and the traumas that the ghost went through that made them stuck on earth are like, usually pretty minor misunderstandings that Mm. they had with like a relative or something. Um, and so it's, it's melodramatic in the sense of, um, it's clear who the good guys are and the bad guys are. And the plot follows a kind of like something scary or tragic happens. And then in the end it's resolved, uh, in a kind of bittersweet way. Like it's sad that the ghost is still dead or the ghost gives its final message to a loved one, but then they get to move on. Mm-hmm. So I think there are a lot of ghost stories like that in popular horror movies. Like um, The Sixth Sense I was thinking of is kind of like yeah, that. Yeah, The Sixth Sense, um, The Conjuring series, even though it's like they have to leave something awful to keep creating a sequel. Mm-hmm. Insidious, like a lot of the ones that are kind of about families um, have this melodramatic and, and like almost Christian kind of like you can be redeemed at the end message. Right. But then there are still ghost stories that are just, um, they end like, like, I mean, you see a lot of it in like the Japanese horror and the remakes of that, of those films, um, like the ring and the grudge where it's like the ghost is just this almost like virus that just wants to keep killing people. And it almost doesn't matter what trauma happened to them because all they are is like full of rage. Right. Yeah. That seems to be more like the sort of just like the Hollywood pure entertainment aspect of it, where it's just like you have these hordes of demons that aren't anything like real humans. Yeah. And you've got the hero that doesn't even have to feel bad about vanquishing them because they're just pure evil embodied. Whereas you have other stories that seem more like in line with what it really means to live a life. And where if you can't find peace at the end of your life, you're not ready to go to that next stage, whether it's heaven or reincarnation or or eternal silence or whatever it is. Um, And yeah, so I'm also curious, you know, you make this distinction between ghosts and demons and how, 
ghosts aren't often able to, you know, traditionally actually speak to people, whereas demons sometimes are able to speak and trick you. So um, yeah, I'm curious to hear your like take on the difference between ghosts and demons. I mean, this comes from a from a Catholic context. I'm not sure if there are similar ideas in other traditions, but um, you know, if it's if we're talking about ghosts and Catholicism, which is like something that a lot of theologians just haven't talked about at all, but based on the ones that have, like um, a ghost can only appear to you if God is giving it permission to do it. And the only reason God would give it permission is so the ghosts can kind of ask for prayers or resolve something. But I, I mean, according to what I've read and heard, um, the ghosts don't, don't talk. They just kind of appear as these images and maybe they're weeping or they're gesturing in some way. Whereas a demon, according to this, um, a demon can say all kinds of things or it could mm. take on the appearance of like a ghost of a loved one that you are really grieving. And so the, the Catholic criticism of things like, you know, holding a seance or using a Ouija board is like, those are just demons. Like you are only, <laughs> you are right. only talking with demons who are pretending to be ghosts. And I don't know if that's, I mean, I think it's probably more mysterious than that with like, when I think about what I actually believe. Um, but it's a, it's a really interesting idea to me that like a mortal soul um, would be limited and not even able to speak when they when they reappear to the living, whereas like a demon would have kind of free reign and could be noisy and disruptive. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, too. And I think it's also you need not take it literally. Like it does seem like when you have some dark urge within you, you justify it to yourself and you kind of can convince yourself that even if you're doing an evil deed, it's somehow justified. And it's it's almost like, you know, I imagine in Lord of the Rings where the king has that evil guy who's always whispering in his ear mm -hmm. and telling him what to do. Like, this guy's trying to take you down. You've got to strike first <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of the way demons, whether they're literal or right. metaphorical, that's how they operate. Whereas yeah. with ghosts, it's more like maybe you have some sadness tugging yeah. at you or you have some guilt or you know there's something unfinished. And it's not like you really are, are explicitly know what to do, but you can just kind of feel that you need to give some compassion yeah. in order to be at peace. Uh, so I, I think it's interesting to, to think about. That makes sense to me. And I, yeah, I think the, the mood of a ghost or of a haunting is like sadness mm -hmm. and maybe dread and, and fear around it. But yeah, it seems like images flashing in your mind of that person or of something like that. And then... Yeah, yeah, as you say, just like a mood kind of infecting you. Well, I want to bring up one example of of dread with the experience of a ghost and one mm. of sadness. Mm -hmm. So there's this one ghost story that has been passed down in our family that you mentioned about a, a disembodied growl that one oh, of yeah. our relatives heard. Maybe you could just tell that story briefly. That was a, I mean, that's, that was a friend of mom and dad's who heard it, um, who I don't know that much about, but it, but he, uh, I guess he heard a, a, just a growl in the air, like a demonic growl. And it, and it frightened him so much that he converted back to Catholicism after leaving it. Yeah. That's that, that is like just so terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's amazing when you look at something like that and it, it literally changed this guy's whole life. And whether that literally happened or it was in his mind, either way, it's powerful. Right. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And then as far as a sad example of a ghost sighting, you have memory as almost a kind of ghost. And, Definitely. And so, you you know, you talk about our, our grandfather. I'll, I'll quote it from the book. At the nursing home before he died, my grandfather mistook drifts of snow outside his window for lost children. The orphans, my mother said he called them. Do you see them? It looks cold out there. Why doesn't someone do something? Yeah. So that is, I mean, it, it makes me think about how when you're in your twilight years, the memories that appear in your mind start to 
mesh with what you're actually experiencing in your sensory perceptions. Mm -hmm. And I told this to Maria, my wife, and she said her grandma, who has Alzheimer's, has the same exact experience, except with her, it's that she sees children in the reflections of all the glass windows at their house because they live by a lake and like pretty much the whole wall is glass windows and she's always saying like oh why don't why don't they come inside like and the grandpa's (laughs) like what are you talking about wow yeah that's really eerie but it, it does kind of feel like when you're in your twilight years and you're close to death that it starts to um you know you start to experience like it's like you've got one foot in this world and one foot in the other yeah. Yeah. That's what people say. Um, yeah, it would make sense. Yeah. Um, well, maybe we should get to our third topic, which is God. So I, I love talking and thinking about religion. And I find that anytime I talk to someone about religion, usually much of the misunderstanding can be corrected if we set a firm de- definition of God. Because Hmm. that sounds like the hardest possible thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I guess for me, it's like when someone asks me, do you believe in God? It depends on what their definition is. If they give one definition, I'll say yes, 100%. Whereas if they give another definition, I'll say no, 100%. Yeah. So how, how do you think about God? How would you define God? And how would you present your own beliefs? I mean, I, I think, um, I don't think there's been a time in my life when I have not been talking to God every day in prayer or or in frustration, even in times when I was like more of a kind of atheist, nihilist, like it never went away, like the longing for that. Um, so I think for whatever reason, I my mind is just kind of religiously skewed. But um, I think God is more is far more mysterious and unknowable than, you know, what I've learned within Catholicism or what I've learned in like studying other religious traditions, just sort of not extensively, but as an outsider. Um, Is there one religious system that you think gets to the closest or? Well, I just, just because from such an early age, um, you know, we grew up Catholic, like that resonates with me still. And for whatever things I disagree with and the history of Catholicism as this powerful and often like treacherous institution, um, there's something that feels really real there, um, in the supernatural aspects. And I don't know how, I don't know how it all works with like other people's beliefs. Um, but I think there's something I think there's something going on and sometimes it feels that that something is responsive to my prayers and my and my rituals. Yeah, yeah. I I would say that, you know, I definitely consider myself to be a Christian as well. And I mean that more in the sense of I follow the example of Christ rather than all the doctrines and dogma of all the ecumenical councils that decided what was going to be in the Bible or not in the Bible. Um, although I would say that I think there's a little bit of a limitation with the metaphor of God as the king and the Definitely. kingdom of heaven and the monarchical view of, of religion. But it makes sense because that's what Jesus knew at the time and that's what everyone he was talking to knew. So it was a really apt metaphor that anyone could easily understand, like God the Father. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm more interested I, I still use that language because it's been passed down. I use it sometimes, but I, uh, yeah, I think that's just coming from human culture and history. And it's, I get more out of reading about mystical traditions, which are like more creative and visionary and, and people are having like firsthand experiences. Yeah. And, and that's what I, I think Hinduism is the, the real value they bring is in realizing that we are all part of God. And one of the big mistranslations that Alan Watts points out is that Jesus actually said, I am a son of God. He didn't say, I am the son of God. Mm. So it was almost like Christianity put him on this pedestal that no other human could get to. He's the son of God. Like, 
too bad you're not the son of god he is right whereas in hinduism it's like we are all children of of god and we are all the godhead and when you sum up all of us together that's what the godhead is it's not some external figure that's viewing us from afar it's really like the summation of all of our conscious power spiritual power whatever you want to call it except i would want it to go beyond just humans too you know yeah I, I, no, yeah totally <laughs> totally it's not all just humans i would say i mean this is a question i've had and i don't know the answer but i've always wondered if god is really truly cosmic in the sense that it's beyond earth beyond earthlings or if when we say god what we really mean is gaia like mother earth and that's really like the grand psychic power that that we're tapping into is the power of planet earth i mean it could it could be both i think mm -hmm. um if it's just gaia then we are really in trouble <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's coming for us <laughs> well what's your take on the i wasn't planning to ask you this but what's your take on the fermi paradox like the fact that we haven't encountered any other conscious beings outside of earth so far i don't know about that paradox but you mean like aliens or something yeah it's basically the paradox of you know we know how many stars and habitable planets there are and it's it's innumerable so out of all of these potential other planets that could host life why haven't we been able to find any signs of them in our telescopes or any of our other devices I don't know. I mean, we're still as powerful and as intelligent as we are as a species. Like, we're still limited in, in what we're able to perceive. Yeah. And so all you, the... think they're, you think they're still out there? We just haven't found them yet? I don't spend a lot of time thinking about aliens, but I do know there are a lot of people who would say we have already encountered right. <laughs> the aliens. Well, that's like the, the whole Christian modern pseudo-christian take is that aliens are demons right yeah and they're kind of the same thing and it's also like ghosts that talk to you are demons so it's almost <laughs> like anything that is that is unnatural or not of this earth is also seen as ungodly and therefore yeah. wrong yeah it's um yeah it's interesting to me it's but it's a very paranoid way of of viewing reality yeah and would you say that religion is a net positive in the world or a net negative or break even? I mean, I'm I feel frustrated by the way religion has been mobilized by p politicians, mm -hmm. um, especially in America right now. And uh, so I just think it's so specific. I think individual belief in something that transcends the human is positive. Um, yeah. But I think dogmatic institutions that could be encouraging people actually against ethical behavior is negative. But that's like a human problem. Like that's just another kind of group being created that you're asked to conform to. Right. It does seem like the as people become less religious, they're taking on a new religion by another name, whether that's wokeism or the new religion mm -hmm. of anti-racism or whether it's, uh, you know, on the left or the right of the political divide. And I think that there is, you know, for all of the flaws of something like Catholicism, it is ancient and it stood the test of time. And even if it can mislead some people, it helps so many others. And so I think like almost it's like when in doubt, go with the more ancient belief system that has really stood the test of time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think people should keep their minds open, though. And uh, like I've found value in thinking about what, you know, the practices of my ancestors, which is it's just so Catholic on both sides. And um, but I know, you know, if you have ancestors that you're not proud of, like, say they were slave owners in the south or something or um then maybe you don't want to do what your ancestors did and so you're right. not interested in their religion or their politics so it's 
yeah, it's individual, but I do feel a power in thinking about like, if I say this prayer in Latin, it's been recited by other people needing help for centuries. And I just find that moving. Yeah. It's almost as much about a connection with the dead and human history as it is about, um, you know, the efficacy of that prayer or something. Right. Well, that's the perfect segue to our increasingly digital reality and how much we interface with the ghosts of people, whether they're still living and it's a picture or video that has captured their moment in time or whether it's someone who maybe they died long ago and they're, you know, you, you bring up the, the, uh, you know, our cousin, her Instagram is still active after she had a tragic death and people will still tag her and comment and like photos. So we're in this really weird time in history where our digital selves outlive our physical selves. And at the same time, when you think about what you're actually spending your day doing, I know for you and me, mm-hmm. it's like 90% of your waking hours are looking at a screen. <laughs> yeah. And that's not real. It's like, it's literally light projections. And that's, you know, that gets to your title, blue light of the screen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, um, it's a weird and interesting time to be alive. And it's, it's uh, something about having everything become increasingly virtual um, and having us get used to that sense, even though there are like physical realities behind like how was your laptop made or where exactly is the cloud storage, like storing things. It feels very ethereal. Mm -hmm. Um, You're just like pulling these files from somewhere. You're opening up window after window, Um, especially during like this long quarantine. It's like everyone's face looks kind of the same, like, everyone I'm talking to either at work or socially is just like another head. Like they might as well be like an actor on TV or something. So there's this sense of like the unreal and not being in a body. Um, And one thing I like speculate about is like, as our experience becomes more ghostly, which is to say just images like disembodied, Mm. um, what does that do to how we think about ghosts or the afterlife? And, and I, you know, in previous generations, maybe a century ago, um, people reacted to new technologies like the telegraph or the telephone or early photography and film by thinking pretty much immediately about the dead and like, is this a way we can contact the other side? Like even Mm. Thomas Edison tried to make some kind of weird phone that could talk to the dead. but with the new technologies that we have today and the kind of rhetoric I hear from like the tech leader billionaires, it seems to be more of a push towards immortality and like extending who we are through AI or through like expensive experimental medical procedures. And it's and I wonder, like, is there something about working each day, day after day in these digital images, which can be so easily manipulated and are so ghostly that's making us in my in my opinion erroneously believe that we can like that we're not bodies anymore and right. that we you know we, we're past this whole problem of ghosts and and can just like live like we're angels or something that don't you know yeah i've i've noticed that a lot especially since the pandemic started where you know one person tweeted when all the california fires that are raging and the sky looks you know, it was this apocalyptic orange color. And the person tweeted, everything looks apocalyptic right now. And then someone replied and they said, no, everything is apocalyptic (laughs) right now. Why is it that we can't experience our own reality? It's like we're buffering everything through our phones. And an even more literal example is your iPhone auto corrects the color of the sky to be this (laughs) nice blue. That was so frustrating. Because it couldn't believe (laughs) that the sky would actually be that color. Yeah. And you were in, in, uh, you know, San Francisco at the time. So you experienced that. I was really like, I was thinking about the movie, The Others a lot that day. Cause I was like, am I dead? <laughs> like, is, this, <laughs> is the reason I can't leave my house and I can't see the sun because I'm dead. And it's like the fog in that movie <laughs> that keeps the family trapped inside. Um, but it's, I mean, what's going on? Like I wrote those sections in the book in a very different context. And, and it's, it's wild to me that during this, pandemic like which is all about a bodily threat 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's more than ever we have to be aware that we could just get sick and die and that people we love could get sick and die. And yet for those of us who are, you know, fortunate enough to be able to work remotely from our laptops, like life has never been more virtual. Mm-hmm. And so you're like living this disembodied daily life, but then like in the background there's this like fear of like contagion. Yeah. So it's been a it's a weird paradox. Yeah. Well, I think we should talk about the future scenarios because as strange as the times we're living in are right now, it could get a lot stranger from here, potentially. (laughs) Definitely. Let's talk about the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. The worst case scenario, which I'm, as a pessimist, I'm going to, is kind of also my likely scenario, (laughs) Um, is that people across the world die at an alarming rate, not only from this pandemic, but because of ecological destruction, because of food, uh, you know. Insecurity. Insecurity, because their homes are being destroyed. And meanwhile, there's a very small, wealthy, elite group that is extending their lives to like, you know, past limits that we have never extended. Sorry, that's really inarticulate. That is extending their lives through these kind of technologies. Um, And so there's just like vast inequality. And so some people can go on believing that like, humanity is progressing because their lives are becoming like more more sort of safe um but meanwhile it's sort of an apocalypse for the rest of the world yeah have you seen the show altered carbon no so that it's kind of similar to to your worst case where it's basically in the point where you can take your consciousness from one body to another and rather than being in your head, it's actually in like at the base of your skull, like in your neck almost. Mm-hmm. And they call them stacks. And so whenever your body dies, they just pull out the stack and they put wow. it into another body that they call sleeves. Wow. And yeah. so you'll have people that have literally lived through like, you know, a dozen sleeves, like a dozen lifetimes of yeah. bodies. And they're super wealthy because you think about yeah. how much wealth you can accumulate in that time. Um, but one thing that I thought was interesting in the show is that every time you transfer your stack to a new sleeve, you lose a little bit of your consciousness. Mm. So some of the oldest people, it's almost like they're automatons where they don't have any like actual spirit in them anymore. They just have the same like mental patterns and memory files and that kind of thing. It sounds like a vampire story, (laughs) a sci-fi version, you know? Yeah, right. And there's something horrifying to me about wanting to live for that long Mm -hmm. um and i understand it if you think that after this is nothing and life is pretty good for you so you want to just keep going but um you know it's it's unnatural (laughs) to right to extend your life for centuries um and something about it is just like morally suspect to me yeah Um, plus it's like the quest for immortality prevents you from enjoying your life while you're living it right Um, It's like, uh, uh, bring up another Alan Watts quote where he says, you think about things so much that you get into the state where you are eating the menu instead of the dinner, where you value money more than wealth and are generally confusing the map with the territory. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I I think that is definitely a bad scenario. And and I agree with you that it's it's not so unlikely. It does kind of seem like a general trajectory we're going in. Right. But let's let's flip it around now and talk about the best case scenario. Best case scenario. I think the best case scenario, which seems to be the opposite of what's happening for at least half of the country right now, uh, would be like taking history seriously and and taking the dead seriously. And mm-hmm. so in that way, kind of honoring ghosts and you can take that as a metaphor or as something literal but to do justice to people who have suffered and died in the past, um, you know, is to, is to consider like how we can like not just keep repeating that in the future. And I think that has like political implications. Um, 
and like social implications for how we should take care of each other. And that's, you know, and I don't think that technology is inherently bad or good. I think it's completely about how we use it. And it's amazing that we have achieved so much and that could be used for great social good. Um, and we have, we have like the resources or at least some people do to prevent a lot of death and suffering, but it's just not being equally distributed, equally distributed. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would agree with that. I think it's, I think it's good to be mindful of death throughout your life so you can really live in the present. And that's what that's what tends to be the best uh, remedy for fear of death is just if you're always living in the present moment, then that moment of terror, the screaming memes never comes mm. because you're always just living moment to moment. And it's almost like just like in any horror movie, the anticipation of something scary is often worse than the actual scary moment where they pop out. Mm -hmm. So I think if people can live more presently, that would help. And as far as conquering death, I would hope that if we do conquer death, it's done in a sort of transcendence sort of way where it's almost like we're, we're going up in the emergence ladder and we're going into like higher dimensions and it's in that sense it's even more real like we're experiencing more reality rather than less reality and you know we don't do like some sort of cheap hack where yeah our bodies are still going for a while but at what cost yeah i mean the worst case scenario for ghosts would be um and this is kind of a horror movie answer would be that we are creating so many ghosts in 2020 <laughs> that the entire 2020s is like the most haunted and cursed decade we have ever had. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. it's like the movie Pulse where like the afterlife becomes too crowded. And so the ghosts start coming into our world and messing things up and horrifying people. So we should watch out for that as well. Yeah, well, we definitely don't want that. <laughs> Maybe we bring it home with the most likely scenario now. Most likely scenario. I have never felt less confident in my ability to predict the future beyond my own small sphere of influence. Um, yeah, someone, can... someone mentioned, they said, the future has never been more evenly distributed than it is now. Like there's yeah. so many ways it could go. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think horror, um, will continue to be created. Um, however horrible the real world gets, I think, you know, it's a, it's a genre that has been with us from the beginning and will keep going. Um, I think, uh, I think God is like is just going to continue to be a tricky concept and it's hard to disentangle the symbol of God as this like as this sort of politicized thing that is being exploited. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I think people can have their own experiences of spirituality um, inside or outside of places of worship. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I just finished reading this amazing book by Carl Sagan, uh, The Demon Haunted World, mm. where he talks about how a lot of the conspiracies and superstitions are really just emblematic of what's going on in people's minds. And we shouldn't be st steered off course by that. And we should stick to science. And science, he says, is like a candle in the dark. Like, you know, there's still so much dark we can't see. It's not like we know everything. Right. But at least it's something and it's better than being fully in the dark. And so I guess my big hope for the most likely scenario is that science and mysticism find a way to speak a common language. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like what we've learned from science recently is that there are much more incredible phenomena going on than we would initially have thought. Like yeah. when we think about quantum entanglement and the many worlds theory and and what we know to be going on based on scientific experiments, it starts to become much closer to what the mystics have been talking about for thousands of years. Right. So if we can somehow match our scientific rigor with the insights that mystics have had, I think we could 
understand reality to a far greater degree. Yeah, and I I would hope that those that that perspective would be would lead to more humility for people, not so much um, more achievement or something. Like right. I, that seems to be one not of trying the to become primary God, problems. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, not trying to control it all. And I mean, we're never going to have complete knowledge. Yeah. Well, do you have any any final thoughts for listeners about you know any for horror fans out there or any any final words? I would say uh, be sure to remember the dead this season in October and November, especially, and try to stay alive. <laughs> All right, I like it. That's a good place to end it. Have a happy Halloween season to everyone listening. This has been Horror Ghosts and God. Claire's book, Blue Light of the Screen, comes out October 13th. What is currently happening? And we'll see you next time. Thank you. The past, the present, and the future. If you enjoy thinking about the future as much as we do, we invite you to join the HTF community. Simply go to hencethefuture.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and add your email address next to the button that says, Enter the Void. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at hencethefuture. And, most importantly, we encourage you to please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. Our team reads and appreciates every single review. Thank you again for listening to today's episode and for staying curious, and we'll see you next week.